Hi, this is Ben Lowell. Merry Christmas and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, Christmas in the First Testament, with a message entitled, Christmas in 2 Samuel. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. You know, if you were asked what the five most important moments of the First Testament are, how would you answer? You know, I've sometimes asked that question to a Sunday school class or a theology class or even a college class. And I asked the question not so much to figure out what parts of the, you know, First Testament are meaningful to my class, but I ask it as a test. Well, what's the test? Well, the test is this. See, I want to discover whether people think of their Bible as a series of stories or as one story. That is, do they think of their Bible in terms of, you know, the Sunday school lessons they learned? That is, you know, if they were in Sunday school when they were young. Well, that's because they learned to have courage like David, you know, and face Goliaths of their lives or dare to be a Daniel and dare to stand alone if that's required. And then when it comes to Christmas, we learn of the faith of Mary, the wonder of the shepherds, the gifts of the wise men. You know, our hearts are full of stories and the practical applications that we can make to our own lives from those stories. But when asked, what's the story of the entire Bible? Well, often we furrow our brow and wonder what it can possibly mean. The reason this Christmas has been about celebrating Christmas from the First Testament is because Christmas is not a series of heartwarming stories about the birth of Jesus. It's the coming to fruition of that one story, that one story that's found in the 66 books in our Bible. Now then, let me get back to my question. What are the five most important moments in the one story of the First Testament? So are you ready? Well, here goes. Number one, the creation and fall of man, created in God's image but rebelling against his purposes. Of course, as we've seen, an essential part of that account is the promise that God will raise up a seed of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent. Now, number two, the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 15. God takes this one man and promises he will be the conduit of blessings to the whole world, and he promises him that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars of the sky or as the sand on the seashore. Of course, we know that can't simply mean his physical descendants. Now, this speaks of a much greater group, and and furthermore, we know that the blessing was promised to his offspring or his seed, and finally, that one seed is the Messiah himself who fulfills all the promises given to Abraham. Number three, the giving of the Ten Commandments, recorded in both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. It's a declaration of the righteous character of God and what's necessary for any human being to be righteous in his sight. And we know that only one man in all of history has ever lived up to that. Yeah, that was the man that was born to us that we now celebrate at Christmas. And number four, the events of 2 Samuel 7. We're going to get back to that. And finally, number five, the coming out of Babylonian exile and the promise that the temple that's being rebuilt will house and witness the coming of the Messiah. And that's it. Those are the five moments around which all the rest of the stories of the First Testament center themselves. Fail to understand those five moments and all you're left with is a bunch of stories. But understand that these five moments anchor the entire story. And suddenly, when you come to Christmas, the events of Christmas make sense. So let me today speak about Christmas from 2 Samuel. 
You know, 1 Samuel is the book that chronicles David's rise to becoming Israel's great king. The kingship of Saul has been a disaster. Eventually, the man who was concerned with himself and his own power and his own glory rather than God's ends in death at the utter defeat to the Philistines in battle. David then becomes the king. 2 Samuel is the count of King David. And anyone who's ever studied the life of David will tell you this is a remarkable man. He transforms Israel from being a loose confederation of 12 tribes to being a single nation. The nation defeats her enemies and establishes borders that are defensible and brings back the nation to the law of God. David's life is a remarkable achievement. What we also know that the years of war and the conquering and of the exercising of power has taken its toll on the man. His inability to keep his entitled children in check, his catastrophic sin with Bathsheba, the civil war that followed that was led by his own son, his inability to control his chief general, well, it all began to add up. Yeah, David's life is the story of a man who served his nation and his God in remarkable ways but it's also the story of a man with great weaknesses and sins. There's so much to learn from David's life, sins to avoid, faith to emulate. The Psalms of worship that he left behind still inspire the church of Jesus in our worship today. But there was one moment in his life that was so overwhelmingly important that were it not for that one moment, the life of David would not mean what it means to us today. And that one moment has defined David for all time. And furthermore, that one moment has made us understand the true meaning of the birth of Jesus. Well, remember that when the Magi arrived in Jerusalem, they set the city abuzz. We don't know how many there were, but their arrival must have caused quite a stir. They would have arrived with all the trappings of important dignitaries. What does one do when such important men arrive without advance warning? And they come laden down with costly gifts. Immediately, everyone to the very palace of King Herod wants to know what these men are doing there and what they want. But of course, no one has to wait long. They've come to know where the king of the Jews has been born. Now, just so we understand the question, we know that Herod was given the title king. And the answer to the question of how he became king, well, that's an interesting one. You see, Herod was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. His father was Antipater, and he had converted to Judaism. Herod's mother was a Nabataean, and so on both sides, father and mother, he was not Jewish, although he, like his father, practiced Judaism. But how did he become king? Well, that's a long story. You know, we can't go into the details here, but It was his wealthy and powerful and influential father who had supported the Roman general Pompey. Again, I'm compressing the story a great deal, but the family of Antipater was a highly influential family. And eventually the Roman Senate would confer on Herod the title King of Judea. And the Jews hated him. As we're going to see from 2 Samuel 7, the wrong man was definitely the king. But Herod had his spies out. He was a cruel man, and he was willing to kill anyone who advocated against him. If you thought Herod to be an interloper, well then, most of the people in Judea would have agreed with you, but they would have kept that matter to themselves. But inwardly, the people were awaiting for a second Samuel type of king. And that's how it was until those magi 
with that very impressive retinue from Persia and Babylonia showed up. I mean, why were they there? Why had no diplomatic representative shown up in advance to prepare Herod for their coming? How can they simply show up unannounced? And with that, the city is astir. Why are they there? And immediately they make their reasons known. We were in our own country when an impressive star was seen in the sky, and we asked ourselves what the star meant. Was this a sign from one of the gods? And some of us remembered from the time of the exile of the Jews that one of our own number, one of our own wise men, was himself a Jewish exile. His name was Daniel, and he told us the story of the coming of a great king. Indeed, as we thought about the accounts he left us before he died, we remembered that he spoke of something from the Jewish law, from the book of Numbers. See, that book says a star will come out of Jacob and a scepter that is the staff that a king holds in his hand, shall arise out of Israel. And furthermore, that star will crush the forehead of Moab. Now, please remember, Herod is a Moabite. Now then, say the Magi, we've been thinking about that prophecy, a prophecy that one of our own, a Jewish wise man from among us, has left with us. And when we saw the star, the only explanation we had is that star that we saw must signify that the king that he spoke of has been born now. And so we had no time to send a representative to make way for us. Instead, we immediately made the provision for a long journey, and we've now arrived. We knew that in order to find this king, we had to go somewhere in Israel, and we thought that the only place to go was Jerusalem, the capital of the Jews. Surely, if we in the East knew that a great king has been born, you'd know it as well. So now, where is he? Wow, that had the entire city in an uproar. And so Herod was called, but he was shrewd. He wouldn't show his hand lest he look like he was opposed to 2 Samuel chapter 7. He couldn't afford that. So he got the theologians who went to the book of Micah, and they told the wise men that the child would be born in Bethlehem. If the one spoken of in 2 Samuel 7 has arrived, well then, it's to Bethlehem that you must go. Ricardo wrote, Thank you and all the men and women of Back to the Bible Canada for the great work you do. You continue to inspire my spiritual growth, and I'm grateful God has given me the opportunity to contribute all praise and glory to God. Ricardo, thank you. Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. Has your life been impacted by the Word of God and perhaps the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? Well, with your financial contribution or by becoming a monthly partner through our 1119 Fellowship, we can continue to make Bible teaching you can trust accessible to our nation. If you'd like to be part of the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again or in doubt, Just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. It seems like in order to understand why the birth of Jesus caused such an alarm in Jerusalem, we need to find out what 2 Samuel is about. 2 Samuel begins with the death of King Saul. Abner, the commanding general under Saul, is still alive after the battle, and he acts quickly. He makes Ishbosheth the next in line to the throne. He is king now in place of his father. But the tribe of Judah makes David to be king 
exhibiting a deep fissure between the people of Israel. A seven-year-long war develops, but in the end, evil men assassinate King Ishbosheth, and in consequence, David acts justly and executes the king's killers. And in consequence of that, all Israel unites and makes David king in the land. Several important events solidify David's place in history. The first is his capture of Jerusalem. You see, until that point in time, because of the unique geographical features surrounding the city, Jerusalem remained in Jebusite hands and was not a part of the nation of Israel. But David, using brilliant tactics, captures the city and makes it his capital. And that was huge. The next important action was that because of his intimate knowledge of the Philistine military strength and weaknesses, David was able to utterly defeat the Philistines and permanently end their threat. Then he would turn his army from the threat of his western border to the east and defeat his enemies there. And so he was defeating all the threats and unifying the nation and bringing a sense of national cohesiveness. The promise made to Abraham that God would give them the land and that he would protect them was beginning to be fulfilled in David. As I've said, that would have given David his place in history, but that's not the grandest moment of his life, not by far. The apex comes in 2 Samuel 7, and the story begins with what we might expect to to be simply the next stage of David's forward-looking leadership style. He settled in Jerusalem, and he's built a palace for himself, and that was important stuff. But he's unhappy. There's a contrast that up until that moment was not on his radar screen, but now the contrast is striking, and he's deeply embarrassed about it. Yeah, he's winning the wars, and he's establishing the capital of the nation, but as he looks out of his palace window, he sees the tabernacle of God still from the time of Moses, and it's a tent a tent that spoke of the wilderness wanderings and of God's faithfulness among his people. But now the contrast between the king's palace and the tent used to honor God, while it seems more embarrassing than the king can bear. It makes it look like David is important and God is a second-class player in the drama. That cannot stand. David determines the time will finally come to change the tabernacle into a glorious temple made of stone and wood and gold. He wants Jerusalem to be a symbol of the great and glorious God who dwells among his people. And so David calls the most respected prophet in the country, and his name is Nathan. And initially, Nathan doesn't even go to the Lord. He can't imagine any reason why God would object to this. Go ahead, he says, build the thing. I'm sure that the Lord will be glorified in this. He's going to be with you. But God comes to the prophet in the night, and he sends him back for a second meeting with a king. Tell David, says God, to answer a few questions. Would you build me a house to live in? Did I ever, in all the years since the time of Moses, give the impression that I was waiting for a permanent house to live in? Where exactly did you get the idea that this is what I wanted from you? And those of us who know the end of the story will also know that before this chapter ends, God tells David that he will not be permitted the honor of building the temple. Instead, his own heir, that is his son, will have that honor. Yes, a temple will be built. David won't do it. Fine and well, but still, that's not the drama of the chapter, not even close to it. See, Nathan tells the king, God actually told me more. And you're going to have to listen carefully because what God says concerns you. 
First, instead of reflecting on what you would like to do for God, would you take some time and reflect on what God has done for you? Read 2 Samuel 7, 8, and 9, and as we do, remember, Nathan is speaking to David, and he's telling the king what God told him to say. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. Now we're in the middle of verse 8, but it's important to stop at this moment and to think of what God has said. Look, David, you didn't accomplish a thing. I did it. You were the youngest in your family, and one day I sent the prophet Samuel to your house. You were too insignificant so that anyone would have thought that you should be there when the prophet should arrive. Instead, they left you out in the field to take care of the sheep. That's where you were when my prophet showed up at your door. And from that, I made you king. That's what I did for you. And not just a king, but the king, the man who unified the nation and cut off all the enemies of the nation so that the nation might have its homeland. What I did has secured your place in the history of your nation. But God's not done. Nathan knows that God has more to tell the king. The latter part of verse 9 records the prophet speaking for God, and he says, And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. (laughs) Suddenly David's status has been raised, hasn't it? Not just one of the great kings of Israel. No, says God, I intend to make you one of the greatest men who has ever lived. Now the king's sitting up. What's just happened here? What does God intend to do? So let's skip forward for the sake of brevity to verse 11. Remember, Nathan's still speaking for God. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. That's how we started the adventure with David wanting to build God a house. And now God comes back and says, oh, no, that won't happen. Instead, I'm going to build you a house, a house that is the greatest house in the human race. I can almost imagine David saying, steady now, what have you just said? Again, for the sake of time, I now take you to verse 16, which are the last words of Nathan from God. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And as you and I know, thrones and kingdoms do come and go. I mean, where, after all, is the throne of the Egyptian kings or the Sumerian kings? Where's the great Akkadian Empire? or the Assyrians, or the Babylonians, or the Persians. I mean, all those thrones have come, and they were impressive. But history always humbles the proud. No throne lasts forever. Ah, but says God, yours will. Then that's the last words of Nathan. But David went to the tabernacle, and he worshiped, and he has something he wants to say to God. And at first, You know, the only words he can think of are the ones that we find in verse 18, which says, And then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? That is to say, God, you know that I'm a nobody, and I, being a nobody, have been told such things. Now to verse 19, where suddenly David gets it. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. You know, that word translated as instruction is the Hebrew word Torah. You probably know it is often translated law. That is to say, this is your law for the human race. David gets it. If my throne will endure for eternity, then it must be that the entire human race will eventually be under my rule. My throne will be law for the entire human race. 
Now then, that revelation led to an understanding of all kings after King David. When each new king, that is, each direct descendant of King David came to the throne, it was natural then to ask, is this the king who is destined to rule the earth? And if you know the story of the kings that followed David, some were great kings and some were not. Hezekiah, Josiah, great kings, others were wicked. That is, until that day when the Magi showed up in Jerusalem. Where is he, they said, that is born king of the Jews? And because that interloper Herod had grasped a title, his title, king, was not a title from 2 Samuel 7 or from the ancient prophets. His title had been given from the Roman Senate. But then come the Magi and ask the question, where is the real king? Matthew said, Herod the king was troubled and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. It wouldn't matter who you were. You might say this can only end in a bloodbath. You can't read the Christmas story without knowing 2 Samuel 7 and the promise made to David. And you can't understand the meaning of the story without knowing that this is the king, as Matthew already told us, that is the direct descendant of King David, and he is destined to rule all the kingdoms of the earth everlasting with no end. You see, that's the story of Christmas. Our king has come and his kingdom is now unstoppable. It will not end until all the nations are ruled by him. Thanks so much, John. You know, I think it's important, is it, that we rescue the meaning of Christmas uh, from the sentimentality that seems to have taken over? You know, Christmas, I don't know, Ben, uh, for, you know, you and I throughout the rest of our lives, I mean, Christmas is going to be filled with sentimentality. Um, And I suppose, uh, you know, everyone's going to watch gushy movies and uh, always talk about this feeling that's supposed to be recaptured every 25th of December. I I think, however, uh, when when we think about what God has done in sending the great king who is called upon to rule all the nations, Um, that we are to remember that to bow before Jesus himself or to remember, you know, the wise men, the shepherds bowing before this Christ child, this idea that we need to to remember the greatness of the one that we worship. That's so important at Christmas time. We ought to remind ourselves that Christmas is the best reason for hope that we have. It may be dark in the present hour, but it won't always be this way. Christ is guaranteed it. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Christmas in the First Testament, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. The year is coming to a close, and I couldn't be more grateful for the encouragement, prayers, and support we received from so many gracious ministry friends across the country. All of Back to the Bible Canada ministries, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry in doubt, rely on the generosity of people like you. We teach the Bible with a purpose, that those who hear might receive and believe in our Lord Jesus. That's the intention of every program, every word, and your gifts make all that we do possible. Please consider supporting the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada as we strive to reach our December year-end goal of $376,000. Call 1-800-663-2425 
or donate online at backtothebible.ca.